you're just a miserable old person. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, can you can you just not like? Is it impossible to just enjoy something like? Radio Drone. Welcome to another Thursday night, or maybe not a Thursday night if you're not listening to this on a Thursday night, but we're not recording it on a Thursday night, but it should play on a Thursday night, but then you can listen to it on anything but a Thursday night. I don't know if that confused anybody or not. I'm Josh Hadley, and this is Radio Drone. With me, as always, is Cecil. It's Thursday night. Kinda. Last week, he was gone, and... Cecil and I didn't uh, let him off the hook, so he's got to explain to us. What were you doing last week? I don't know. Who knows? I was you enjoying sick, I was enjoying my... Uh, yeah, I was actually pretty uh, pretty sick on Sunday and then almost wasn't able to come into work on Monday. So I was uh, trying, to, trying to relax and I didn't have uh, much of a voice at the time. Is that Canadian sick or real sick? Real sick. What the oh, fuck? Oh, wow. Canadian not even Canadian sick. sick. <laughs> I just always give you crap over being Canadian. What's what's Canadian sick? Like getting bitten by like a radioactive moose or some shit? Like a zombie <laughs> moose? <laughs> Which then apologizes to you for biting you? Yeah, it does. I'm not going to apologize for making you do the Adam and Eve promo. Uh, okay. Uh, if you go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME, you can get yourself some stuff. Uh, you can get, I believe, what was it? Six free DVDs, a uh, mystery gift, a gift for him and a gift for her by using the promo code DROME, which only works in the United US of A. Uh, anywhere else, you can't get that special deal. You can't get it in the land of Mexico North, which we call Canada. So yeah, head down to Adam and Eve, get yourself some shit by using the promo code DROME. Yeah, whatever. Get, your, get yourself a butt plug or something. Who knows? Tonight I wanted to talk about something. Now, you guys are old enough. You've been movie fans long enough. You guys know when stuff that you liked as a kid, as you grow up, you end up hating those same things, or vice versa. A movie maybe you hated as a kid, you love now. Sometimes, I found with me, sometimes it's due to my sensibilities change. For instance, I caught the Blues Brothers the other day. I'm like, I used to love this movie, and I still think it's a good movie. But now I go... Jake and Elwood Blues are assholes. <laughs> They're straight-up criminals. They break every law. They deprive other people of their civil rights. I mean, I don't like the Illinois Nazis either, but Jake and Elwood don't like what they say, so they break all of their stuff. That's criminal. They constantly lie to the cops who aren't corrupt. They, they decide that their mission for God is the only thing that matters, and screw everybody else. We're supposed to believe Charles Napier as the, the singer of that country band that wants to beat the crap out of them, that somehow this country band is the bad guys. They stole their gig, humiliated them, and cost them a ton of money and wrecked all of their vehicles. Jake and Elwood are the villains of this movie. The adult <laughs> me sees that. As I grew up, I interpreted the movie totally different. It took you that long to see that, though? Yeah, I, I used to think Jake and Elwood were these, like, freedom fighters fighting for the old, you know, bluesy ideals of fighting it, sticking it to the man. And I hadn't seen the movie in 20 years. So I watched it, and I'm like, 
wow, they're assholes. Well, I mean, I think they're they're definitely meant to be sort of anti-heroic, and I think their their cause is is just in a certain way, like they are helping someone, but in, in a way they're doing it in such an over-the-top fashion where it's like there's no way this could like it's meant to be a very over-the-top slapsticky kind of comedy. But so, we're supposed to identify with them as, yeah, they're right. We want them to succeed when they're the assholes. Ah, well, there's like, aren't there like neo-Nazis in that movie or something? Yeah, and the, and the neo-Nazis only come after them because the neo-Nazis were holding a rally, which they were legally entitled to do, and Jake and Elwood broke all of their shit because fucking Illinois Nazis. It's like, no, you're yeah, wrong. No, you should do that to fuck Nazis. Nazis don't deserve a voice. <laughs> that I will fight you on. I'm an, I'm enough of a liberal to say yes, they do. They have the same right to say the same stupid shit that anybody else says. If I if I saw Nazis protesting somewhere near my place or something, I'd probably go outside with a baseball bat and chase them away. Cause fuck Nazis. Like they just they, seriously Nazis deserve a voice? No, no, they don't. They believe in fascism and taking rights away from certain people. I think uh, Jake and Jake and Elwood did the right thing. Just just a quick aside on that. Uh, it's um I, I don't know the exact quote, but essentially freedom of speech it doesn't just cover like the you know w the freedoms that you agree with it or the right for people to say shit that you agree with and the right for people to say shit that you disagree with. So I mean, if they're out there you know preaching hate and intolerance or whatever, that is their given right to be able to do that. You know, you don't have to agree with it, but uh, you know, it's like a, it's the whole slippery slope thing. You take that away from them, and then okay, well, who's to say now that somebody might disagree with something that you agree with? So it's you know, it's a whole argument that I'm not good, but I mean, it's I just felt like saying that. But anyway, I'm I'm weird uh, in the sense that you're weird in a lot of senses. <laughs> I am weird in a lot of senses, but uh, a lot of stuff that I grew up liking, I still like. Like I don't really give a shit. I'm not one of those people that uh, will lump something into a guilty pleasure, or you know, uh, I I saw this as a kid and I grew up and I realized that it sucked. I you know I I saw something as a kid and I liked it and I grew up and maybe I recognize it for being a little bit more silly than I, I thought it was when I was a kid. Like, there's a lot of movies that, uh, uh, you know, animated stuff, and I remember uh, like The Dark Crystal and, st and uh, The NeverEnding Story, and and just thinking that these are these really sweeping you know, uh, just serious movies, and they're great, but they're a little more silly now that I'm older, but it doesn't take away. It's not all of a sudden like I just stopped liking them. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm trying to say just your perspective shifts because like I loved Star Wars, the original Star Wars when I was a kid. It wasn't until I was a teenager I went, wow, this whole movie is predicated on one coincidence after another. This is really not very well written. I can still look at it for, th through my 12-year-old eyes and go, I can still enjoy this on a certain level. The film critic in me mm -hmm. goes, this is really poorly written. You know, I mean, like my, my, my perspective shift, like I used to think Ferris Bueller was the coolest guy on the block. Now I find out he's a sociopathic, sociopathic, egotistical asshole who is who is emotionally and mentally abusing everyone around him. And in real life, I would want to kill this guy. Man, See, that, that, was... that I agree with. I absolutely agree. Ferris Bueller is one of those movies that I when I grew up, I was like, oh, this guy's so, so cool. He's a rebel and all this stuff. And then I turned about 14, 15 or 16 or so watching it again after seeing it as a kid. And I was like, this guy's a piece of shit. 
Like you, you really feel you really feel sorry for Cameron, and you feel sorry for everybody in Ferris's Ferris life. Ferris is a spoiled little rich yeah. boy. Yeah, he's an entitled little prat who's um taking advantage of everybody, and he's meant to be the he actually is meant to be the guy that you root for in the movie, and it's you're supposed to root I, against Rooney. Who, yeah, he might be a jerk how he's doing it. He's doing his job. Yeah. You really feel like the, to me, I feel the most for Cameron, if anything, because you got to think his his dad probably beat the shit out of him, you know, after those credits because rolled. Of Ferris. Yeah, because of the Ferris and destroying the the Ferrari and everything like that. That was that was that kid's last hurrah. He got pr- probably strapped to a chair and beaten with a belt or something. <laughs> um, and Ferris just went off, you know, hey, rode off into the sunset. He's Ferris Bueller. He's the cool guy. He convinced everybody he was dying. And no, everything's okay now that the weekend's over or the day he skipped is over. He's a sociopath, um, isn't he? he? He is, absolutely. That one I, I do completely agree with. And it's something I didn't catch when I was a kid. And then I noticed later on after watching the movie again and actually kind of taking notice of what was going on in the film. I, I still enjoy it for like, like I, I think it's a it's, it's a decent movie. It's funny. It's got some but, good laughs in it. Yeah, it, it does. But it's like you feel a little I, I almost watch it now in the same way that I watch movies like American Psycho, where it's to me, it's more of a of a character study of a sociopath with some comedic moments than it is a full on comedy where you're rooting for this guy. Because maybe whether it was intentional or not, I see Ferris Bueller as more of like a Patrick Bateman esque just completely sociopathic character that speaks to the audience in this sort of fourth wall breaking way than I see it in, in a more of a comedic way because he, he is, he's absolutely a complete scumbag. Ferris Bueller absolutely has somebody tied in his basement, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Cecil, did you always think Ferris Bueller was a hero and now you see he's a sociopath or did you always see him as a sociopath? Apparently I'm a sociopath because I identified with Ferris very much. (laughs) (laughs) Ferris was a liar. He was a fraud. He was a scumbag. He manipulated everyone around him. He stole from people and then got mad when people stole back from him. He... He abused the system and then thought, I'm too good and rich for the system. He's a he is a stereotypical sociopath. Peter was right. He's Patrick Bateman without an axe. I, I saw him as more of a leader. Yeah, of of the bad guys in Cobra. Uh, well, <laughs> no, I meant like he uh, he was able to, you know, manipulate, uh, manipulate people to get them to do what they want. And, and I mean, and that is kind of a sign of a good leader. You know, you, you get people to 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 agree to do with what you uh, maybe not agree. Uh, what's the wording I'm looking for? Uh, you get people to go along with what you're doing because they believe that what you're doing is the right thing. So I don't know. I, I think that uh, you're you're looking at it a little bit. I mean, aside from the uh, the rich family thing, which I did not come from a, a rich family at all. But uh, I identified with uh, with a lot because, you know, I I skipped school a lot. I I didn't. Uh... Oh, I mean, we've all we've all skipped school. But have we? destroyed our friend's dad's car and, and life. lied and life completely and like manipulated people left and right and lied and made shit up it's like he there's a difference between being a little rebellious here and there and skipping school and and being this what what could very well be like like a criminal mastermind if he really actually put his mind to it I'm going to start uh, looking at my career options. Well, okay. Okay. Uh, How about going back to a John Landis film? How about Animal House? Yeah, Delta House. They're standing up, you know, for all these great ideals. And it's like, well, in doing that, 
They destroy everyone's private property just because they don't like it. They commit numerous sexual assaults in the movie. They break so many laws that it's ridiculous. They, I mean, Bluto even has that line that it's his job to deprive other people of their education. He's in college specifically so you don't get an education. That's an asshole. The Delta <laughs> House people are all jackasses. As an adult, I go, no, lock their fucking asses up. Mind if we dance with your dates? Yeah, kind of. Uh, I mean, but you, can't, you especially can't forgive the numerous sexual assaults that they commit in that movie. If that movie were made today, they would all be sex offenders. Well, the, the thing is, though, you got to look at it from, I mean, it's it it's not meant to be serious. And it's also from that time period. There's a lot of stuff that like if you tried to do, uh, you know, from then, if you tried to do now, people would lose their mind over. People are losing their mind over certain things. You know, OK, he he did uh, he did sexually assault like what, a 13 year old and like left her on a football field. <laughs> and this but, is our hero, ladies and gentlemen. And this is our hero. It, it, it was a different time. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but it, the thing is, but it's not meant to be taken so seriously. They're the assholes and everybody knows they're the assholes. And that's what makes them funny is because if you went to a college like that, you identified with some of those people because you knew that group of, of people that got too drunk, that were too loud, that were completely inappropriate at all the wrong times. And uh, it, it's uh, it's not meant to be taken so seriously. I, I don't look at it. I, I don't know. I guess this all is coming around to like me just I I, I think I, I grew up in the sense of where I need to, you know, I pay my bills on time. I have a house. I have a wife and a son and, you know, I, I take care of them. But as far as like entertainment and, and video games and movies and all that stuff, like I, I don't look at it as that. I look at it as like, eh, you know, it's fun. I like it. It's entertaining and I don't take it so seriously. I just look at it as I used to think these characters were heroes and someone to look up to like, yeah, I want to be like Bluto. And now I go, I don't want to ever know someone like Bluto. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, still it, it, do. I still do. <laughs> yeah, we both like... do. His name's Peter. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, he's right there. He's sitting right next to you, Cecil. But, you know, like uh, Revenge of the Nerds, you realize that our main character rapes a woman in that. And she falls in love with him for it. And you go, holy <laughs> crap, the nerds are, I mean, they're not the bad guys because the jocks clearly commit just as many acts of violence and whatnot. But you kind of go, these are not exactly the good guys the movie leads us to believe they are, are they? What I was saying about Ferris Bueller, I can kind of say the same thing about uh, Revenge of the Nerds and Animal House is I, I don't think you always have to really relate to the characters to enjoy the movie. I mean, to bring up American Psycho again, how would I enjoy that movie if the whole time I'm expecting to relate to this character? He's meant to sort of be, not sort of, is a, a piece of shit. Um, he, he's a guy who we're led to believe is a serial killer who's screwing people over and works on Wall Street. He is the main character, but he's not someone you'd want to relate to. Same with with Animal House, you don't have to relate to these sex offending party animals. You don't have to relate to Ferris Bueller and you don't have to relate to the nerds or the jocks in Revenge of the Nerds. It's it's all whether or not the movie is entertaining. In Revenge of the Nerds, the only real upstanding people were, were the Tri-Lambs. We're, we're Lambda, 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 the black guys. <laughs> You've got one, and I know Cecil's about to flip his shit out on me, like Empire Records. I'm not talking about the difference between director's cuts and all that. I mean, our, our hero, who we're supposed to men is... 
we're supposed to see as like, oh, wow, he's like so cool, man. He steals all of their money and gambles it away because, you know, he was doing the right thing and we're totally supposed to go, oh, well, you know, he's a cool slacker guy in the 90s. No, he's an asshole and who should have gone to prison. You're just a miserable old person. <laughs> like, like <laughs> can you can you just not? Like, is it impossible to just enjoy something? Like, I mean, can you go outside and just smell flowers and be happy? Like, I mean... No, I it... can't because the kids are on my lawn! Get off my lawn, you damn kids. I don't know. I don't necessarily... Uh, I really think that... Uh, I guess because I identified with, with Lucas a lot. He wasn't necessarily the hero. Uh, he was kind of... I, I kind of felt like a lot of the movie more revolved around, like, AJ and uh, Joe. I mean, he, he was doing what he thought was right, and that's why, like, Joe didn't want to send him to prison. He he wanted By to... By embezzling uh, money, committing fraud, crossing state lines, for one thing, so that makes it a, a federal offense. You know, he's only looking at 50, 60 years in prison for what he did, but we're supposed to go, come on, he's fun! No, he's not. I mean, he, he was like, you know, kind of this semi-serious guy. So I think that um, like Joe saw. Well, actually, I don't even know. Was he was he over 18 at that point? I don't know what the, what age he was. I haven't seen that movie. In... I guess he was if he was able to go to the casino and gamble. He he saw that what he was doing was he was trying to do the right thing. He wasn't like he didn't just steal the movie and or steal the money and disappear. He was taking the money to try to double it so that he could help Joe to say, you know, to to uh, not have the place turned into a music town. And he's Joe didn't want to ruin this kid's life over uh, a careless infraction. People have done dumb things. I've done dumb things. He's got, he's got affluenza. He's going to run down four people and then flee to Mexico. There's because... a difference. There is a gigantic difference between taking some money from a place that you work for and trying to uh, gamble it in an or in in a way to save it so that it doesn't so that you don't lose uh, you know so that your friend who also is your boss doesn't lose the place that he's working for and running over four people get some get uh, get a grip <laughs> perspective. And again, bringing bringing like, you know, a, a somewhat lighthearted teen comedy versus the reality of a rich kid who ran over four people. And I believe uh, he broke his parole or whatever. And his, his mother helped him to uh, escape to like uh, Mexico Me to, or to Mexico. Oh, he's he's in for a treat <laughs> when, when they show him how things can get worse. I, hey, you know what? If I had to be in jail, I'd much rather be in jail in America than Mexico. Absolutely. <laughs> I've seen enough Robert Rodriguez movies. There, there is always a Danny Trejo right around the corner, you know? <laughs> certainly is. God, I don't even know if I remember watching that movie. But I guess an example I can make just to go to something else that's kind of like a teen teen drama comedy thing is one one movie that I still enjoy but I feel like the ending doesn't hold up like it's something that I didn't think about when I saw it when I was younger but then thought about it more as I got older is The Breakfast Club I feel like that movie in general in uh, for the most part tells a good story of these very different people from very different walks of life, you know, that all meet in detention. They're they're sort of uh, at, at each other's throats for most of the film. And then they start to kind of get to know each other and realize that they're not actually so different. And then the movie takes a little downward spiral at the end where for whatever reason, you've got uh, you've got um, 
what's his face, Judd, Judd Nelson getting together with Molly Ringwald and Emilio Estevez getting together with, uh, I believe, is uh, Ali Sheedy, her, her character. You know, the nerd, of course, is single. For whatever reason, they had to throw in that little romantic element into the end. And not only did they do that, but they completely contradict everything that the movie was trying to actually say from the beginning. The whole thing that, you know, the the looks aren't really what's important. It's how you've gotten to know these people and who they actually are. And then you've got, you know, the sort of weird gothy chick doing herself up all nice and pink for the jock and, and all that crap. That never bothered me much before because I never really thought about it much. Maybe I didn't pay any attention to it. But now actually going back and, and watching it again recently and really thinking about it, that is a bullshit ending and completely goes against what the movie was trying to tell you, the story that it was telling from, from start to finish. That no, they, Peter, that, you don't get it. You don't no, get you it. No, you don't get it. She, Shut she, up and she, let me finish, Josh. She had, finish. To strip, she had to strip away all of her own identity to become part of the conformity <laughs> so Emilio would love her. Don't you Ex- get it? Yeah, exactly. Even though they like already connected earlier in the movie. like There was no point for that stupid makeover. The, the, the more I actually think about that, the, like, the more ridiculous it is that somebody actually... Like John Hughes wrote it, right? He was the yeah. the writer. For most, yeah. yeah. Like for most of that, he's completely on point. And at the end, it's like, and then uh, uh, Allison gets a gets a makeover, and Emilio notices that he's he already noticed that she was attractive. He was already into her. Like the, if anything, I bought them hooking up a lot more than I bought you know uh, Bender and Claire getting together. But at the fact that you got these two completely shoveled in little romantic things at the end, and it's like. Uh, it's just it's such a garbage ending and i try to every time i watch it now i feel like i can't watch the last 15 minutes because it absolutely contradicts everything that the movie was trying to say earlier on and i think that's just um that that to me is an example of really loving a movie when i was a kid and then noticing something completely batshit about it later on that i do not agree with whatsoever also the fact that John Bender sexually assaults Claire when he's hiding under the table, and that leads to love. Great message to send, right? Yeah, that's an awesome message right there. She's she's into the guy that like made her cry by insulting her family and calling her a phony and like all this stuff. Like it's it's just such a it's such a spoon fed ending. Like and, it, and cramming his it, face into her crotch when she didn't when she clearly didn't want it. Yeah, exactly. Like you, like somehow we're we're led to believe that she's gonna suddenly be into him no they they can't just they can't just end up being friends or something at the end and kind of understanding what each other is going through no you gotta you gotta lump in that little romantic thing for the for the audiences to go yeah i relate to that just no shut up that that movie easily could have ended with them just being friends that's how that's how i recall and watching it again recently it's it's like oh this is horseshit You've also got ones like no Cecil's gonna rally, rally at me for not being able to just enjoy a comedy, but caught Tommy Boy recently, and it's like we're supposed to love Tommy Boy and David Spade and their little quest, and you go, why? Tommy Boy is a complete screw up who's done nothing with his life, who's done nothing to engender all of the faith put in him. He constantly screws up, and yet, I mean, I know Rob Lowe turns out to be a villain for other reasons, but at this point in the movie, we don't know that. Rob Lowe is made out to be the villain way earlier because he doesn't believe in Tommy Boy, who's screwed up every single opportunity he's ever been given. So we're supposed to go, yeah, but he's the underdog, man. I just enjoy things. I mean, I I will go into certain things and, and overanalyze them and whatnot. But every once in a while, especially with comedies, you just laugh and have fun. 
and don't really think about too much of, you know, all right, he's a big fat buffoon who's screwing everything up and he ends up, uh, you know, redeeming himself at the end. Yay, fart jokes. I mean, I I think you're reading too much into it. I don't know. Maybe, man. I mean, I can kind of see where you're coming from on Tommy Boy. Like, he is supposed to be an idiot. They do make that joke that he's, uh, what is it, that he went to college for four four or seven years or something like that. Nine years. Nine, nine years. Like, plenty of people go to college for nine years. Yeah, they're called doctors. I, I can enjoy that movie. I really, I love Tommy Boy. I have to say it. I think that movie is fantastic and hilarious. And it's, I think it's, uh, to me, Chris Farley's best film and David Spade is, is hilarious. And then Rob Lowe plays plays the great dickhead that he always plays. He's awesome at that shit. And I think Tommy Boy is is a very rootable underdog. He His heart really is in the right place. He's trying to do good by his dead dad. And he knows that he keeps screwing up. He's absolutely self-conscious about that. And, and the movie is his journey in finding out um, how to use his raw charisma, something that, that was sort of passed down to him from his dad, that ability to sell, that it's not so much the um, academic smarts, that it's the street smarts that he, he is able to utilize and is able to sell those card parts. So I, I think maybe, uh, I mean, I can see, I can see sort of seeing him as this, as this, but it's like you're kind of supposed to i mean he's meant to be a dumbass he's a dumbass that comes through at the end and and i i don't know i just i i can't hate on tommy boy i i really love that movie dan Aykroyd steals that film though oh he's fantastic oh yes dan Aykroyd. he my only he, he only maybe has 20 minutes of screen time but he owns the entire film Man, then, an awful lot like pine pine there son it's like oh yeah i watched my <laughs> with the uh what was it? The thing in the car? Or the um. With the with the air freshener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like, uh, oh yeah, I, I myself with an air freshener. Ah, oh, good, you pinpointed it. The next step is washing it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then I've always had a I've always had a problem with with these type of movies where you know you're supposed to have the family adventure where the dad doesn't have enough time for the kid and then the dad has to give up his career because he's got to be there at, like, you know, the kid's third grade play, or the kid will be devastated as a human being. I hate these movies. I hate these movies so much because, yes, dad shouldn't have a career because paying the mortgage and keeping the electricity flowing is not as important as your fucking self-esteem because daddy didn't see you as the third sheep from the left at the Christmas pageant. I think I'm now seeing why you, you hate everything. What? <laughs> did did someone not come to oh, like shit. one of your recitals? No, did I didn't some... want my parents there. They embarrassed the hell out of me. I was glad I... when my dad was a drunk. It's it's all coming to the surface. <laughs> but, but I mean, you, you, you see this as a this trope is like in therapy. <laughs> But I mean, seriously, you see this as a trope in so many family movies. Oh my God, he's a bad dad because he actually went to work that day instead of going to the recital when he would have gotten fired if he didn't turn in that proposal. And then you'd all be living in a Super 8. But your recital's more important. Like Jersey Girl. Everyone hates on Jersey Girl. It's not a great movie, but it's not a terrible movie. For one thing, Carlin steals that film. It's got a lot of genuinely funny parts in it. I really was disappointed when Kevin Smith had Ben Affleck give up everything to go to the stupid play or whatever it was for the daughter when it's like you realize that he would have had his career made he her life would have been made if he would have gone to that goddamn meeting but no he's got to see her play at school ah yeah that's uh I don't I really I think you hit the nail on the head there that shit is is downright cringy then why is it such a popular trope? 
Why is it so popular in family films that if the mom or the dad actually, you know, works to keep a fucking roof over your sheltered little eggshell head, that they're somehow a bad parent? I guess they're they're trying to show like you know the love of families and that it's not it's not money and and work and like career that matters it's the love of of family and it's a very very hallmark moment kind of thing and I I can see where they're coming from with it and they usually do it a lot for you know holiday movies and stuff like that like jingle all the way and shit like that but it's it's a pretty ridiculous mindset to have and it's it's demeaning to parents that really are doing a lot to, to put food on the table and to keep the electricity going and to keep a roof over their kids heads and it's like oh well, you're a bad parent if you're if you're going to work you know if you're not showing up to all your, your little boys oh you missed your your son's karate thing we got his new belt oh you're horrible it's like well how about you know he's working working a 40 to 60 hour to sometimes longer week 12 hours shifts putting fucking food on the table but no it's so bad if they miss this one little moment in their kid's life where they win some some award or some crap like that what wouldn't you rather that yet you have the parent that is bringing in the money and it's like is able to support their family, is able to give their kid a future? I mean, showing up for one or two little recitals here and there isn't going to do anything. But I can I can see where they're going with it. They're trying to create that warm, happy, fuzzy family unit kind of thing. But in the reality, the, the family unit are a parents or a parent that works that provides a, a life for the kid like and, and people that are disillusioned by that like uh, a lot of a lot of people that go oh you're putting your career before me and this it's 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 stupid and and people need to acknowledge that it's stupid but unfortunately it's it's still an ideal that that sells because hallmark unfortunately sells kind of overused but like it, it is what it is uh i guess they they're they're trying to promote the whole love conquers all and uh you know if you uh, if you're really there for your kids that's more important than your career and uh i i think that a lot of times it, it kind of comes to the whole well uh like with with the case of uh, jersey girl it's that he would have gone to that meeting but then that would have made everything better but then there would have been another meeting and another meeting and another meeting and there always would have been a meeting and there always would have been a reason why he wasn't there and uh that kind of was what that was pointing at that you know if he took this meeting and he didn't go and spend time with his kid well then he never would you know really be there for her and um it, it is kind of a, a sappy thing but it's the movies like you know movies aren't really always meant to portray things as they are they're meant to portray things as we would like them to be you know we we want to see this guy realize that uh you know he yeah. needs to go and be with his daughter and and that's more important than this career and uh that's kind of the whole deal with that i think realistically people know all right well if i'm supposed to be at this meeting or whatever and i don't go then i'm going to be in trouble but you you do kind of leverage that i mean they also do the things where the guy just plain forgets you know and that he's the asshole and uh so you got to look at it from that perspective too it's uh i you know i i i'll let you know in a few years when when my kid starts having to do that stuff dad <laughs> your your good bad flick's not as important as my recital oh uh, I mean, it is really a case. Uh, it is a it is a case of uh, fiction. I mean, you've got they're kind of going the sort of over the top, uh, you know, family comes first thing. I mean, a lot of movies do the, especially in the late '80s and early '90s. I mean, look at Tango and Cash. Am I really gonna believe that like the bowels of a prison have these like giant fans and shit? 
No, it's there for aesthetic and to be kind of over the top. And I think that's that's the same as what they're trying to do with the family thing. It's not all that true to reality, but they're trying to convey some kind of message. And that's fine. Sometimes it's not the movie or the message that's the problem. It's the audience. And I'm not talking about people like you, people like Cecil even. I'm talking about the general, general mainstream audience. Now, there's been an actual study done. That's but the Washington Post did in I think it was like 2009 or 2010 when when shows like CSI and NCIS and Law and Order Special Victims Unit and all that were at the peak of their popularity. People expect law enforcement to break the rules because on NCIS they're constantly oh you know we can't get a warrant for this oh just hack through the you know NSA database and get this and and, and we'll fabricate this and we'll we'll threaten this even though that's illegal on SVU and all that that it worms its way into the popular culture to the point where that's what people think cops need to do to be cops. That starts to then erode society. And I know maybe I'm getting a little heavy here, but when you see on NCIS and CSI and Law and Order, the cops and the lawyers always having to break the rules because goddamn the <laughs> rules and the law always get in the way of sending the bad guy to jail. And then you find all these people that the Innocence Project let go because of corrupt judges and lawyers and cops that if they had followed the rules, innocent people wouldn't have gone to jail. The mainstream populace is what I'm saying is is influenced by the pop culture. So in the in like a cop show, is it somehow wrong that we all love the action movies where where the cop cannot solve the case until he's taken off the case and takes has those rules that unhandcuff him and he can finally get the killer? Is that wrong of a message to send when it really influences society? Fiction. It's called mainstream fiction. has a problem differentiating <laughs> between fiction and reality. That's, that's why I said you are not the fiction. problem in this. Cecil, you're not the problem. Peter's not the problem. You people are smart enough to know that. Your neighbors probably aren't. Okay, but but I mean, that's not the fault of fiction. I mean, okay, so let's say that uh, we have to start catering everything towards all the stupid people. That That's not a way to do things. I mean, I know uh, newspapers are already in the crapper because they say uh, – Papers are written at a seventh grade level so that everyone will be able to read them, uh, you know, oh, and that's God. why like newspapers are such garbage anymore. It's because there's there's nothing in depth with them. And all right. So I'm not not putting uh, shows like CSI and that on the uh, intelligence quotient. It's something that is meant for entertainment. And if people can't differentiate the difference between entertainment and reality, well, that's their fault, not the fault of the product. But it becomes everybody's problem when more and more people think that's how it works. Like gun safety. Everyone sees, you know, all these action movies where people got machine guns that are fight, you know, Arnold's taking out hundreds and hundreds of people in commando. Have you ever fired an actual M16? You got about three seconds before that whole magazine's done and your shoulders knocked out of whack. And people really like will go and get a gun and think it's like it's in an action movie. And then reality hits them in the fucking face. Reality? And fiction, <laughs> they they go and learn a very valuable lesson. I mean, it's like the idiots that think that uh, if you play first person shooters, that somehow makes you uh, like a trained killer. And then on the same thing, <laughs> you play, you know, Halo and then you go and you shoot an actual rifle. It's completely different. Are you trying to tell me that Miami Vice was not a actual depiction of what 80s Miami was like? Are you truly trying to tell me that, Cecil? Well, the clothing was was pretty much on, but but everything else. <laughs> 
I think was pretty much off. <laughs> I hate you now. <laughs> They're kind of getting it mixed up a little bit. The uh, the whole cops breaking the law to catch certain criminals in movies. It's it's an escapism. It's a it's a vigilante fantasy kind of thing. When you got movies like Dirty Harry, Cobra, stuff like that, you've got the the hero cop that goes you know against all odds to to catch the killer. That's like evading getting caught through loopholes and politics and getting shady lawyers and all that shit. That's really all that is. It's just, it's kind of a, it's a commentary on actual things like that, that happen where you've got real criminals, real scumbags that, that deserve to be in jail, slipping through the cracks. People like Jordan Belfort, who for some reason is out of prison and got out rather quickly and is and still actually has money and got to make money off of a book deal and a movie deal. Uh, these are these are the kind of people that people root for cops to actually catch and to put in jail, people that deserve to be in prison. It's more of an escape. Whereas if, if you're actually comparing it to real life and saying that cops actually need to break the rules to catch people and this is the way it is, that they're, they're kind of getting it. They're, they're getting um, sort of fantasy fiction mixed up with, with actual real life. Like there, there is a difference, obviously. It's, they're just kind of looking at it in the, in the wrong way, I would say. What about a true story when it's made into a movie? The, the Revelant is out this week and it's getting tons of awards and accolades. And then I saw on the History Channel a couple of historians going, yeah, that, that movie's like 90% fiction. But there are so many people going, oh my god, this true story, I can't believe this happened. Or Pain and Gain. I loved the movie. The movie stops itself. It starts, ends, and in the middle it stops itself to remind you, this is a true story. These events happen. The reporter who actually wrote the all the articles on the original case says, movie's 70% fiction. So... When people think what they see in the movies when it's a true story, in quotes, is true, is that the problem of the filmmaker or the problem of the of the viewer? The viewer. I mean, you should realize that anything that you're watching, any any documentary, any movie, any piece of something that you're not really seeing for the first time for yourself in front of you that is really happening, uh, there is a large chance that uh, it is being filtered through something. With documentaries, there's sometimes there's the slant of the person who's telling it. Making a uh, murderer. That is the most one of the most slanted, quote, documentaries I've seen in decades. I haven't seen it yet, but I've, I've seen people losing their minds over it, and now there's the backlash to it of people being like, oh, this this wasn't really the way that it all happened. Okay, but it was... when it comes, Cecil, when it comes to making a murderer, that happened mm -hmm. when I was working at Channel 2 and Channel 26. I saw all of that. I watched that testimony live, logging it for the station. I saw all the evidence. I was run, I was floor directing the day the verdict came down. Stephen Avery is so guilty. The cops did set him up, but he is so guilty. But if you watch Making a Murderer, all you see is about how the cops set up this poor, innocent man, and we need to get him out of jail. Because yeah, they didn't... saw it in a documentary, in quotes, that is so slanted to, we got to get Stephen Avery out of jail. But uh, yeah, so and I think isn't there like a there uh, a petition to the White House to get the guy pardoned and all? And it's like people, which is by the way not how that works. But fine. Yeah, exactly. It's not how it works. But again, you got really stupid people that are all uh, you know they got a cause to latch onto because they spent you know an hour and a half watching a documentary <laughs> instead of uh, reading a book or going to a library or maybe uh, you know. Uh, learning something a little bit different. And I mean, and this is coming from me who uh, 
I I admit that uh, I I enjoy I spend more time with entertainment products than I do uh, quote unquote educating myself. But the thing is, I recognize the difference between when something is being fed to you versus something that you are consuming. What about when mm-hmm. it's so inaccurate that the movie has to be sued to stop calling itself a true story, such as Domino? The real Domino Harvey saw a rough cut of the film. She died before the, I think she died before either the film came out or or whatnot, but or shortly after. She saw that Domino was sold as a true story. Go see, go look for the original teasers. Then go look for the trailer. A true story. Dot dot dot. Kind of. Because the real Domino Harvey sued, saying, yeah, other than the names of people in this, nothing in this movie actually happened to me. And she was gay. <laughs> no, like, um, they, they, had her, they had her sleep with one of the dudes in the movie or whatever. She, no, Well, okay. According to her, she was bisexual but leaned much closer towards being le- a lesbian but occasionally was with men. And the uh, guy that they had her sleep with in the movie was someone as close to her as like a brother who grew up with her. So, so she was offended that not only they made her straight but who they made her straight to. <laughs> so she sued the hell out of that. What about in a case like Domino where they said, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to claim this as a true story, but we changed everything. Uh, it, it again, like, I mean, that that kind of goes with the uh, movie studios tacking on the, uh, you know, true story or trying to sell things as real. Like with the Blair Witch Project, how many people thought that was real? With uh, uh, so many things, people uh, think that uh, they're being given the true story or the real story or this is something that actually happened. No, people, it's not. Cecil, I remember when the nuke fell on Louisville. Right. (laughs) I remember that, don't you? I, of course. I I just think that um, whenever, whenever I see based on a true story or, you know, the events or something like, I immediately know that more than likely it's complete bullshit. I know that they are not, uh, they're either taking a concept and they made a movie out of that. They, they've just completely altered everything and just made it like not even close to what the thing is. So whenever it's based on a true story or this really happened or or when they try to sell something as real and I just I know like my BS detector goes off and I know even more so than just sitting down to watch a regular movie. I know that, OK, what I'm going to be shoveled here is a steaming load of shit. It might be entertaining, but it's not going to be factually correct. Have you seen The People versus Larry Flint? Uh, not for a long time. Well, okay, you know how Edward Norton plays Alec Isaacman, Larry Flint's attorney in that whole movie? Mm. Alan Isaacman was only Larry Flint's attorney for the Supreme Court case in reality, to the point where the movie even has them bonding over both being shot when Larry was paralyzed, when that was a totally different attorney. And the Alec Eisenman character is essentially five different attorneys over the course of 30 years. But they, but the screenwriters went, it's just easier if they're for the audience if they're following one character. So the real Alan Eisenman said he gets people that think, that come up to him on the street because they saw that movie, that he was shot alongside Larry Flint. When he's like, I didn't even meet Larry until 10 years after that. But the movie showed it. I guess it's a it's a good label to slap on a movie like putting the true story thing whether how true it is or not 
people are probably going to go flock to see it because they're going to be talking about it later. Oh, I saw this movie about this crazy thing that happened. Here's a here's a link to the real thing, or, or people will talk about it. it. It's something that that will stir up a lot of a lot of discussion. I know that as soon as I saw Pain and Gain, I found out that, that was an actual thing that that happened. I went and I, I looked it up. I watched little documentaries on it. I read articles. I read you know the case whatever case files I could find and stuff like that. And that one actually, even though they said it's only like 70% of it is fiction or something, there actually still was a lot to that one that really, like they obviously did dramatize a lot of it and, and they replaced certain characters with that character. But that one is pretty accurate to the actual murders and how the tortures happened and and the body parts that they found and, and stuff like that. Um, So that one was actually quite shocking, but obviously very much stylized it was done in the michael bay way there was a lot of color there was a lot of comedy um the way that the shots looked and then the act the acting choices i mean obviously you know daniel lugo didn't look anything like mark Wahlberg for one something that is time tested to work to get audiences into a theater when you say something that is that's going to be based on a true story people are going to go see it i still know people to this day i still come across people that think texas chainsaw massacre is based on something that really happened. People think that Ed Gein was a, a seven foot, five hundred pound lunatic running around with a chainsaw, wearing a face on his face. People no, actually, actually, the the early two thousand Steve Ralsback Ed Gein movie is a lot closer to reality, really. Yeah, some of those, um, some of the like kind of uh, more independently based ones, like like that one, the Steve Ralsback Ed Gein is more accurate if you really read up on uh, on what happened and what information there is. Same with the uh, the two thousand two Dahmer film with with Jeremy Renner. That one's probably the most accurate as far as actually depicting that person and what he was uh, going through, unlike the 90-something Carl Crew Secret Life of Jeffrey Dahmer that came out as the uh, as the court cases were going on. So, th- so there is a difference between really effectively done, well done, did their research, really made a, a gritty character study of, of a true story, and then like a, a sort of ridiculous uh, Hollywoodized, stylized versions. Some are great. Some are just, you know, re- entertainingly fun, retarded exploitation, like the Secret Life Jeffrey Dahmer. Or you've got really entertaining stuff like Pain and Gain that actually does have a lot of accurate stuff to it. Or just stuff that's very loosely based on something that happened, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that also borrows a lot from Psycho and and stuff like that. But people still to this day, because of the text crawl at the beginning, are like, wow, this is something that that really happened. Whoa. And they don't even go and, and research it or anything. And it's what Cecil said. It's the viewer. It's not the film. If the viewer decides to believe that this is 100% accurate just because of something they see on the cover of the film or in a text crawl or something, that's their fault for being stupid. Well, sometimes it is the the point of the filmmakers, though. Like, have either of you guys seen the 2000 Skeet Ulrich movie Takedown, also known as Trackdown, also internationally known as Hackers 2 Takedown? Uh, no. no. Okay, it, it, it's it's the quote, true story of the taking down of Kevin Mitnick, the notorious computer hacker. There are parts of it that are relatively accurate, and then there are parts where you go, holy crap, because it's based on Tashima's book, Takedown, where he paints himself as a superhero who was taking down the world's most notorious hacker. And if anyone looked at Tashima's version of events in reality, they'd go, holy crap, is this guy embellishing everything? The movie's based on his book. So Tashima is a g- great, awesome computer hacker in the movie, where in reality, he kind of stumbled upon Kevin Mitnick and accidentally caught him. Hmm. 
I mean, even the FBI admits that, that it was more of an accident that they caught Mitnick than anything else. But not <laughs> if you see the true story in Takedown. It's Tashima was a goddamn computer genius. He, I mean, he, he, he was zero cool in Hackers, according to him. It's not reality, hmm. but it's still billed as a true story, though. As I got older, and obviously, as Cecil would say, more cynical, as a, as a movie viewer, I started to look at these things differently. Have, have you ever analyzed all of the have – you, have you ever watched like old, old He-Man and She-Ra episodes and noticed a whole bunch of gay subtext that probably isn't actually there that you never noticed when you were 10? Well, that – like, yeah, there's a lot of um... – like humorous things where you look at it from like an older perspective and you're like, okay, there's, there's, you know, Bert and Ernie, eh, it might be gay, you know, like, <laughs> except you got to realize that probably was never actually written in there. Right. It, well, that's the thing. It was never intended to be that. It's just that now seeing it a little bit older and, you know, you do put like a comical spin on it. It's like, okay, well, there's these two single guys that are living together and they, uh, you know, and then and then you look at He-Man and here you've got uh, Prince Adam and then he turns into He-Man and he's wearing a loincloth and he's, you know, and he's it, it's just it's very uh, comical. Uh, whereas when you're a kid, you're not looking at it from that perspective because you don't know. What about when there were jokes in there that you never got as a kid, but you get now? Like when I interviewed Buzz Dixon, there was a G.I. Joe episode where Cobra was trying to steal a hallucinogenic chemical, and it was from H.S. Thompson Chemicals. <laughs> as a kid, I never got that. As an adult, that's hilarious, isn't it? Oh, that's well, great. Yeah, well, that's a lot of, you know, the adult writers putting stuff in there for, uh, you know, the, the either... Uh, adults at the time watching it or for when the kids watch it again when they get older they're going to catch something oh you know that's hilarious but uh yeah i'm sure there you know there's a, a ton of uh inside jokes and little things that uh just stick out more that of course the kid's not going to get i mean how many pixar movies have little things in there for the adults and various other animated features they throw a little you know borderline risque you know that like the kids aren't going to get but the adults are going to get and it's going to be hilarious Hilarious. Well, and sometimes mm -hmm. that leads to kind of racism, too. There was a Transformers episode. I, I, I think Buzz, Buzz wrote this one as well. He pointed out there was a terrorist group trying to get the Decepticons to come to them, and they were Middle Eastern, and the country was called Carbamia. <laughs> That's slightly racist, but really funny, too, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, some, again, people need to get a sense of humor if they're offended by that. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Come on, that's uh, actually funny. For oh 80s, man, isn't it? that's 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 fantastic. Oh man, that's that's all I have to say about that. Is that's uh that's some nice some nice wordplay there, especially for a for a kid's cartoon. Uh, and according according to Buzz Dixon, Casey Kasem was actually so offended at the racism of that he refused to record the lines for his character in that episode because <laughs> he was so offended at, at the racism of that. Hell, there's a GI Joe <laughs> episode where Dusty calls an Arab a camel jockey. We seek twin brothers riding vehicles similar to ours. Then, to the south, they ride that way. Our gratitude, Effendi. Me and the camel jockey got a lot in common. He loves the desert, same as I do. Oh, shit. And you go, <laughs> wow! You're that? They still play that episode on the hub, uncut. Yeah. It's like, wow, you could not do that in a modern G.I. Joe cartoon, could you? Camel jockey. As you got older as a viewer... Did you get all cynical like me? Or are you able to still look at like an old 80s movie, like maybe that takes place during the Cold War and are put and put it in its correct context? Or are you able to or are you go, 
or do you go, wow, that is dated shit? Well, I mean, I if it came out in a certain era, especially if it's a Cold War era film about the Cold War, I'm not going to judge it too harshly because that's when it came out. I'm sure I'm sure audiences down the line, when you have all the Gulf War movies and all the war in the Middle East stuff, that's going to be kind of outdated in the next 10 or 20 years or whatever. And you're going to have people talking about it in that same way. So I don't, I don't think it's really fair to judge. They came out in a certain era and maybe they're a little dated, but that doesn't mean that you still can't enjoy them and still see them as relevant for what they were at the time. Yeah, everything you have to look at the time frame. Uh, it, it's I I always crack up when people will point something out and how could they be like this and this was a well it was a different time and you know some things are going to seem dated some things are going to seem more like racist or whatever and it's just like you have to look at it from the perspective of when it was out and if you start trying to sanitize that well uh you know if you start removing words from books or you start you know taking things out of certain movies because they're considered offensive now well that's erasing history you know i'm sorry that you're offended by it now but there was a time when that was perfectly normal sorry I, I can't say I disagree with you. I don't think that it should be censored, but sometimes you just kind of look at it and you go, wow, you just couldn't do that today. Like Archie Bunker. No. You, oh, Archie Bunker. You, you, holy you, couldn't crap. Wa- you could not make an All in the Family episode today. You you couldn't. No. Not even HBO could get away with that. Even the Jeffersons, there was a lot of stuff that you could do. Well, it was a spinoff of All in the Family, so exactly. it, it, fit, it fit. It's all Norman Lear, man. And, and uh, God, did, I love the Jeffersons. I actually think the Jeffersons didn't work as well on their own. They they were great foils for Archie and Edith. So when they were when they were the bunkers neighbors for five seasons, that's when I loved the Jeffersons the most because I don't know they they re- they really needed Archie Bunker to play off of. Yeah, you know what I will say, kind of because like when Archie Bunker, I think uh, we were talking about this a long time ago when uh, Archie Bunker went to visit the Jeffersons. He was arguing with uh, with Archie with Bunker George with... about how how, be- how great they were both agreeing how great racism was on each of their <laughs> from each of their perspectives. The fact that Lionel and Ginny Ginny was white or Ginny is half white and Lionel is black that offended both George and Archie, so they had a common enemy. Yeah, and and that <laughs> and then his um, George's mother like stepped in and and Archie was like, "Oh, will you do something about your mammy over here?" And oh. T- so wrong but you but it was hilarious oh Oh, it's hysterical but yeah the best one and i've played the clip numerous times on this show now here's the question (laughs) what have you got against black drivers (laughs) i will not tolerate these outbursts and you will restrict your inquiry to the matter before the court. Well, that's what's, that's what's wrong with the court, Judge. A black man ain't got a chance down here. I'm black. Well, you the judge. That don't count. <laughs> Listen, why don't you arrest some white drivers? I do. You do? Well, where are they? <laughs> Look at all these niggas in here. <laughs> There's enough niggas in here to make a Tarzan movie. That is so funny. 
you'd never be able to get away with that even on HBO today. That is so 70s race humor, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Well, Red Fox just, he he nailed that stuff. And, uh, yeah, there there's just, like, edgy stuff now is it just, no like, they, they will always steer clear from the racial stuff. Okay, with all of that said, Cecil, if people want to find you, since they're probably going to agree with you more in this episode than anyone else, where would they do so? Oh, well, that's very nice. Um, yeah, it means they're all wrong. <laughs> It means they're all wrong. Of course it is. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, they, you can find me continuing to be wrong over at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbedflix.com, and then all of your favorite social media hangouts. Peter, since people are probably going to think you and I are racist for finding a lot of humor in some of the racist stuff tonight, where can people find you? Well, you can find me and my pointy white hood over on Twitter at Cinematica, <laughs> on Facebook, the Cinemasochist, on uh, on uh, on YouTube, the Cinemasochist, and on uh, 1201beyond.com, sporting a uh, red red arm sash with a oh come on, I'm I'm not racist. I'm just you're Canadian. Asshole. You can't. I'm, be. I'm not a racist. I'm Canadian. Like whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, you can wrong. find me <laughs> at 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, have a good night. Try not to fall for the true story stuff. Try not to be a cynic like me, but also try to be a little more critical than Cecil is. And remember, keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.